This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Murder Chronicles. I'm your host, Carolyn Osorio. This is my new weekly podcast that follows stories of murder and betrayal from across the country and across the globe. Join me as I investigate the motives and the madness as we attempt to shine a light into the darkness of the human condition. From Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is The Murder Chronicles. You're listening to Episode 2, Paradise Lost. So I want to start off this episode with talking about my relationship with Detective Lindsay Wade, who is a retired homicide detective from the Tacoma Police Department where these murders took place. And she also grew up in the community. Two years ago, I reached out to her requesting an interview on this case for a Pacific Northwest true crime podcast I was hosting. But back then, timing just wasn't right to schedule an interview. Lindsay was tied up. And soon after, I went to go work on the Shadow Girls podcast. If you haven't already, check out my 10-part series that's a deep dive into the Green River Killer investigation. But here's the serendipitous thing. After wrapping up the Shadow Girls, I started putting together investigations that I wanted to cover for the Murder Chronicles. And at the very top of the list was this case. And right next to it was the name Detective Lindsay Wade. So I reached out to Lindsay for a second time. And five minutes after sending her the email, my phone was ringing. It was Lindsay. And she said, Guess what I'm listening to right now? It was The Shadow Girls. I mean, that's a huge ego boost. I'm not going to lie. But it was after listening to The Shadow Girls that Lindsay and I connected on a fundamental level. We both had really strong thoughts and feelings about what it was like growing up in a community in the shadow of a really big unsolved murder case when we were kids. For me, it was the Green River Killer case. And for Lindsay, it was this case, the Michelle Welch and Jennifer Bastian murders in 1986. Jennifer and Michelle's cases were kind of like urban legend. I mean, they were a couple years older than I was, and I didn't know them. But we all we all heard about it. And, you know, just in listening to your podcast, The Shadow Girls, when you talk about, you know, everybody just knowing uh, what was going on in the area with um, the Green River cases, it was similar in Tacoma where everybody had heard about the two girls, you know, that had been killed in the parks. And because they were around my age and, you know, they were last seen doing things that normal kids did, like what I did with my friends. And so it was one of those cases that really stuck with me and and I think stuck with a lot of people. Because even though most people had no connection to these two crimes or the, you know, the girls or the families or anything, it was so outrageous to think that, you know, a a 12-year-old could go out for a bike ride and be abducted and murdered in this gorgeous park. And uh, and then four and a half months later, the same thing happens to a 13-year-old in Point Defiance Park. 
So the murder of these two girls takes place before kids had smartphones and 24-hour TV and video games at home. So I don't want to wax on about the past, you know, the whole in my day, kids played outside with a stick in the dirt, but it is germane to setting up the backdrop for this really special community. If you were a kid back then in the quaint little town of Ruston, that was sort of like the set and soul of the movie, The Goonies, which came out in 1985 and really captured the quintessential vibe of the time. When kids had their bikes, their friends, well-meaning parents, a time when the spirit of adventure and the natural world were all within reach, especially at Point Defiance, the 760-acre park that was tucked away in the neighborhood. Within walking distance of the urban park called Point Defiance, there was another one called Puget Park. And this is where Michelle Welch went with her little sisters on March 26th, 1986. At the time, it was spring break. And so Michelle was 12 years old when she asked her mom, Barbara, if she could take her two little sisters to Puget Park by herself. She and her sisters would make their own lunches, ride to the park, play, have a picnic, and then ride to their scheduled afternoon piano lessons, which were nearby. Michelle's mother agreed. So it's easy for me to see these sisters. Michelle riding her bike, her long blonde hair flowing behind her. She's pulling along one of her little sisters who's on a skateboard. The other little sister is riding her own bike. All went according to plan until around lunchtime. The sisters had that slap on the forehead moment. They had forgotten to bring their packed lunches. So Michelle, typical big sister, no doubt reckoned she'd be able to ride home the fastest, telling her little sisters to stay put at the park as she hopped on her bike and headed for home. But then, as the little girls were waiting for Michelle's return, nature called, and they had to go to the bathroom. There weren't any public facilities at the playground, and the girls had no way to tell Michelle of their plan, to leave the park and hoof it to a nearby business to use the restroom. So like two ships passing in the night, the little girls are heading in the opposite direction of Michelle, and so when Big Sis rides up to the park with their packed lunches, she realizes... But her sisters are gone. I mean, we can imagine Michelle's distress. She's asked her mom to be in charge, and here she's having this panic and no doubt feeling that tug of responsibility that's always resting on the shoulders of the firstborn. Michelle kept a cool head. She locked up her bicycle, placed the lunches at a park table, and it's presumed that she went searching for her sisters. Meantime, when the little sisters get back from their journey to the nearby business to use the restroom, they see Michelle's bike and the packed lunches on the table. But where was Michelle? The little sisters felt something was off. I mean, Michelle would never just walk away. So they left the open park for the woods. Shouting their special sister call they used for just such an occasion. They described it as a yoo-hoo. We call it a yoo-hoo and we yoo-hooed and yoo-hooed and... No. No care. On a primal level, their internal sister frequency, they just felt that Michelle was in danger. And tragically, they were right. Michelle had been taken into the deep, dark woods by an all-too-real human monster. It's just so horrifying because, you know, the two younger sisters, Michelle's younger sisters, were most likely there, you know, at the park when it was happening. Michelle was reported missing at around 3 p.m. And within 10 minutes, police were canvassing the park for the 12-year-old, speaking with witnesses, too. No doubt, given the sleepy nature of the town, they'd probably just believe that Michelle maybe had gotten lost in the woods or another benign explanation for her disappearance would surface and that she would be found. And as darkness fell, there was still no Michelle. 
I won't even begin to try to describe the mother's worst nightmare as canines tracked Michelle's scent that night. Barbara, her mother at home, no doubt pacing the halls in disbelief and shock, but trying to keep her other daughters calm. But around 10 o'clock that night, they heard a knock at the front door. Police asking to come inside. And that's when Barbara found out that Michelle's body had been found, roughly a quarter mile away from Puget Park, deep within the woods. Michelle had been sexually assaulted and so severely beaten, her cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. During the autopsy, swabs were collected from Michelle's body. But this was a time when the science of DNA was not quite science fiction, but still years off from being a viable tool to linking a suspect to a crime. A witness at the park that day just so happened to be one of Michelle's classmates, and they told police that they distinctly remembered a man watching the three sisters at the park before Michelle had left to get the lunches. The classmate was connected with a police sketch artist that crafted a rendition of the man, which was circulated all over town and also distributed to local news stations. A wave of tips poured in, which included one from a local man named Robert Washburn. There had been a composite sketch that was released in the media, and it was put on the news on Michelle's case. And so he called in to the police department as a result of seeing the sketch on the news in May of 1986 and said, I... You know, I saw a guy that matches the description of this sketch in Point Defiance Park near the rhododendron garden. And he said that he was a jogger at, you know, jogged at Point Defiance regularly. And, you know, if he saw the guy again, I think he said something about, you know, I, you know, I'll, I'll get the license plate or something like that. Remember this jogger. You'll hear more about him later. But at the time, his tip wasn't significant. I mean, he was just one among thousands of tips coming through, all of which were vetted and none led to any viable person of interest, let alone a suspect. The investigation, of course, continued, but all roads in the case seemed to lead to nothing but apparent dead ends. A natural reaction for the community is to question everything they had just taken for granted before. Who was this killer? Where was this killer? But the fear had a pulse, being pumped by the raging heartbeat of parents whose worry became palpable and all-consuming. This was considered a very safe area. I would say that the north end of Tacoma would be considered a very, you know, nice end of town, not neighborhoods where you would expect violent crime to occur. So it was really shocking. It was so outrageous to think that, you know, a a 12-year-old could go out for a bike ride and be abducted and murdered in this gorgeous park. Gone were the days where kids were just able to free-range on their own, especially if you were a girl. And you had to be with a buddy at all times, because it didn't take long to sink into the community. That this wasn't just a killer on the loose, but a killer and sexual predator of an innocent 12-year-old little girl. The stakes just couldn't be higher. Five months after Michelle's murder... 13-year-old Jennifer Bastian and her friend had planned a bike ride together. Jennifer lived in the Point Defiance neighborhood. She was so excited about an upcoming bike tour she had planned. In fact, she'd just gotten a brand new Schwinn bike, which was her prized possession. And you know, when you upgrade to a new bike, the seat's a little bit higher, the frame a little bit bigger. Essentially, Jennifer was at an age where she was going from a little kid's bike to an adult bike. And Jennifer was the type of kid who was determined to master her new bike for the upcoming ride. 
So Jennifer had made this plan to train to build up her endurance. And that plan included a bike ride with a friend on August 4th, around the five-mile drive. That was a paved loop that thread throughout the massive Point Defiance Park. At the last minute, Jennifer's friend had to cancel. But Jennifer still wanted to go. So she called her dad and asked for permission to go alone. Jennifer's dad gave his blessing, but he told her that she needed to be back home by 6.30. Just like Michelle, five months before, it's so easy for me to visualize Jennifer riding her bike on a beautiful day, just a young girl enjoying a taste of freedom as she makes her way through the park. And throughout her ride, Jennifer was seen taking breaks. Witnesses would say they saw her sitting down long enough to take off her helmet and drink water. I mean, the fact that she's actually wearing a helmet in the 80s says a lot. But then Jennifer, like Michelle, just vanished without a trace. At the Bastion home, 6.30 came and went. And given the heightened state of the community, her parents wasted no time contacting the police and reporting her missing. I can tell you that the disappearance of another young girl at a North Tacoma park more than raised an eyebrow. It was full-on panic mode as first responders mobilized immediately to find Jennifer. As the night wore on, flashlights frantically crisscrossed the darkness of the park. But what a job. I mean, remember, the five-mile drive was within over 700 acres of woods to go through. She could be anywhere. They wouldn't find Jennifer that night as they had Michelle. Of course, Jennifer's family was terrified, but they were also encouraged that they hadn't found Jennifer. And so they launched a massive missing persons campaign. As the weeks wore on with no sign of Jennifer, Michelle's mother, Barbara, reached out to Jennifer's mom, Patty, for comfort. Barbara Leonard, which is Michelle's mother, heard about Jennifer and went over to see, you know, Patty Bastion just to, I guess, comfort her. And, you know, Patty knew who she was and and really was kind of like, you know, my daughter's not dead, so, you know, why are you here? Three weeks after Jennifer went missing, on August 28th, a jogger was running the five-mile drive. But they stopped in their tracks when they were hit by a foul odor. The fumes were just so strong that they felt compelled to investigate. So they left the road, heading into the woods. They followed the odor to a pile of bushes, Underneath, they found the body of a young girl. It was Jennifer. Her Schwinn bike was found nearby. The Pacific Northwest woods are no friends to forensic scientists recovering a body and searching for clues to help lead them to the killer, especially in the summertime. Jennifer's body was badly decomposed. It was determined that Jennifer had died from asphyxiation, and it was assumed that she'd been sexually assaulted based on the position of her body and that her swimming suit had been pulled down and left dangling off of one of her ankles. Even though the girl's cause of death were different, investigators were convinced that one man was responsible for both murders. In the days and weeks that followed, Michelle's case was compared to Jennifer's with a keen eye toward finding a connection that would lead to the killer. They went back to that jogger, remember, the one I told you about earlier, the one who had called in a tip two months after Michelle was murdered? 
In December of 86, he's interviewed by detectives because of the tip that he called in on Michelle's case. And, and keep in mind, the detectives are working on the, the theory that the two girls now have been killed by the same person. So they interview him at his home. He doesn't live too far from either one of the parks, actually, um, because they're not, they're like a mile, less than a mile from each other. They interview him, and he, he basically tells them the same story that, that he told them when he called in the tip. And so there was really nothing. They, they said, you know, Rana's background, he didn't have anything of any consequence. And so they basically deemed him low priority and moved on to investigate other suspects. And that was that. I mean, I would have done the same thing. I mean, you could imagine the kind of local news coverage that the murder of a 12 and 13-year-old would garner and the pressure to solve the case. A lot of manpower was exhausted, canvassing the neighborhood for witnesses, interviewing persons of interest, validating the thousands of tips. And still, the dedicated detectives working the cases came up empty. There just weren't any dots that could connect to a killer. It was unfathomable, but both Michelle and Jennifer's cases went cold. There was a little girl who never forgot the murders of Michelle Welch and Jennifer Bastian. And when she was a teenager, she read Anne Rule's book on Ted Bundy, The Stranger Beside Me, which made an impression because the serial killer grew up very close to her home in North Tacoma. I just remember reading the book and I was just fascinated. And, you know, part of the, the fascination that I had was how could this guy just live amongst all these people and seemed so normal. And he was described as being so charismatic and he really just pulled the wool over everyone's eyes. And so that part was really intriguing to me. So I, it just stuck with me. And after I read the book, you know, that was kind of it for me. I just, at that point, I knew I wanted to be a detective. And the other part that was really interesting interesting to me was reading about the investigation. And, um, and I remember reading about Bob Keppel and, you know, uh, you know, scouring the hillside on Taylor Mountain and, you know, looking for bones. And I just thought, like, I mean, I've never heard of such a this kind of a career. I can't believe this is a job that somebody has, but I want to do it. Lindsay would realize her goal of becoming a homicide detective. And in 2014, she started working cold cases, bringing her passion for the victims and her creativity and thinking outside the box to the table. And we had created a cold case unit in Tacoma in 2009. And we, at that time, we had about 250 unsolved homicides and long-term missing person cases in Tacoma. And Jennifer and Michelle's cases were certainly the inspiration for creating the cold case unit. So many years had passed from 1986 to 2014. So many fruitless searches and interviews that had thickened the case file but had led them no closer to the killer. Even though the cases were cold, they were still very active in the minds of the community. Few would forget that the killer responsible for both murders had gotten away. The exciting thing about working the unsolved cold cases in 2014 was that the science of DNA was no longer in its infancy. And it was also a time when investigative genetic genealogy was just beginning to get some buzz, which meant the time was ripe to warm up these cold cases. I had a, um, a female profiler friend from the FBI who had retired and was working at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. She knew about Jennifer and Michelle's cases, and so she said, hey, you know, I think um, those would be good cases to do a case review at NCMEC. Would you and Jean be willing to fly out here and, and do um, a presentation? And so we did a two-day review. So we did Jennifer's case, you know, one day and then Michelle's the other day. 
So what came of that was a recommendation by some of the forensic experts there to go back and um, reevaluate the forensic evidence and reevaluate the, the evidence that had been collected in Jennifer's case. As a result of those recommendations, Lindsay's cold case partner, Detective Gene Miller, sent Jennifer's swimming suit to the crime lab for DNA testing. In 2006, swabs from Michelle's autopsy had been sent to the crime lab for DNA testing, and they were able to get a profile on the killer. But there weren't any hits in CODIS, which is law enforcement's national database of suspect DNA. But nothing from Jennifer had ever been sent. Actually, he submitted it with the intention of getting her DNA profile from the swimsuit because we did not have a reference sample from her. And what he got back was a suspect DNA profile from the swimsuit, which was, you know, it was it was a big shock. I think the thought process from the original detectives was because her swimsuit, when she was found, was pulled down around her ankle, that the sexual assault had occurred after the clothing had been removed. Well, we don't really know what happened. And so there was semen on her swimsuit. That was, that was identified. So that was entered into CODIS, and it also did not match anybody in the database. And it didn't match the suspect in the Michelle Welch case, which for 28 years, everyone thought it was the same suspect who had killed both girls. This revelation was a game changer. I mean, they thought they'd been looking for one killer throughout the entire investigation. It was unbelievable. I mean, for for those that are not familiar with the two cases, you know, these were two little blonde-haired, blue-eyed girls, 12 and 13 years old, who went missing and were killed four and a half months apart from each other in the same area of Tacoma, both in parks, both had been riding bikes, um, both were abducted and then later found in remote areas of these two separate parks. Um, in wooded areas. Both had been murdered, and one of them certainly had been sexually assaulted. The other one presumably had been sexually assaulted, but um, with Jennifer, she was not found for 24 days. So, you know, she was pretty badly decomposed by the time she was found. And so, you know, they could not tell a lot about what happened to her. But just based on the positioning of her body and her swimsuit and everything, it was pretty clear she'd been sexually assaulted. So given all of those things, it was hard to believe that you would have two completely independent offenders that could commit two different crimes that were so similar to each other. We didn't have any other crimes in Tacoma that were even remotely similar. And so it just made sense that it was the same person. And we didn't have any scientific reason to believe that they weren't related until we got that DNA profile back from the swimsuit. And that told us we had two different people that we were looking for. Two separate suspects turned the investigation on its head. It meant that everything that they thought that they knew about the cases would have to be revisited. You know, there were people along the way who had been eliminated because they were not available for one of the crimes. And so we had to go back and relook at those people because, wait a minute, now we can't eliminate this person because if they were in jail when Michelle was killed, that doesn't mean they're now eliminated from Jennifer's case. And here's where that shoe leather detective work comes into play because 2,300 men were identified out of pages upon pages of old reports. I knew that DNA was going to be what solved the cases, but it was so disorganized and there was no way to know, like, 
just by looking at, you know, the case, whether or not somebody's DNA had been collected or whether or not they had been eliminated. So it took me about mm, three months or so of just going through page by page and entering every male name that appeared in the case into a database that I could search. And then I could prioritize people based on their criminal history. How frustrating to have suspect DNA profiles from both killers, but no matches in CODIS. Which is why a newly searchable database from all those files was so important. Lindsay was now able to whittle away the 2,300 potential men to a couple hundred, which was still a lot. The next phase was the long, expensive road of collecting DNA from these men, many of whom had scattered in the wind. And during this process, Lindsay's partner, Detective Gene Miller, had retired, which meant Lindsay was the lone cold case detective. A bright spot, though, was that she received a lot of support from the FBI. The FBI collected like 40 or 41 uh, DNA samples from suspects who were out of state. We would just literally go knock on people's doors and say we're investigating a cold case from, you know, from 1986. Your name is in the case file and we want to eliminate you. Will you give us your DNA? And that went on for months. There's no doubt Lindsay has a passion for this work, a driving force since she was a little girl whose idol was Bob Keppel, the detective consumed with the Ted Bundy investigation, who also became a well-respected criminal profiler. Even so, she's not ashamed to admit that there were some dark days. I think with cold cases, it's very much like swimming against the current all the time because you can do a ton of work and get no result. You really have to motivate yourself. Like, you have to have some internal motivator. Otherwise, you know, because there's no one on the exterior, you know, motivating you. I would say the exception here was Jennifer's mom. And here's where this cold case takes on another unexpected twist. Lindsay, who was, for all intents and purposes, the one and only detective in the city's so-called cold case department, but that put her in a unique position of authority to grant a request from Jennifer's mom, Patty. Jennifer's mom was fantastic, and she actually um, volunteered with me in the cold case unit. And so, you know, she was just really great. She was super, you know, she was positive. We, we just clicked. And so, you know, on those days when I would come in and look around and look at the pile of, you know, case files and think, this is, there's no way. Like, you know, this is daunting. This is probably not ever going to be solved. You know, I would remind myself of what she had gone through and the fact that, you know, she was still able to contribute and, you know, be as positive as she was. I just thought, oh, if she can do it, then I have no excuse. These cases would only be solved through DNA. They had the genetic code of the men responsible, but they needed to get those samples to the right people with the talent to find not just one, but two needles in the genetic haystack. In 2015, Lindsay, who always kept her ear to the ground for new tools in law enforcement, heard of this new thing called investigative genetic genealogy. Remember, this was before the infamous Golden State Killer capture that really put genetic genealogy on the map when it came to closing cold cases. In 2015, I had first learned of, you know, what we know now as investigative genetic genealogy. Um, at that point, it was pretty much unknown and I happened to be talking to a detective from um, Phoenix PD, and they were up in Tacoma following up on a case, and we were talking, and they told me about 
this woman named Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick and how she had helped them resolve this cold case from the 90s using genealogy. And I was, you know, as they told me about it, I thought, wow, this sounds crazy, but cool. And, you know, like at this point, our cases were kind of dead in the water. So I'm thinking, well, I'm going to try it. So Lindsay called Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick. She explained both Michelle and Jennifer's cases. And it wasn't long before she was shipping out DNA samples of the two suspects. From those samples, Dr. Fitzpatrick was able to narrow down the lineage of the suspects based on their DNA profiles. And something interesting bubbled to the surface. One of the names that she provided me on Jennifer's case was um, Washburn. There was a Washburn in the case file. Think back to that jogger I mentioned earlier, the one who had seen the sketch of a suspect shown on the news and called in a tip two months after Michelle's murder. He called the police himself. He put himself in the case as basically a, a witness. You know, I saw a guy that matches the description of this sketch um, in Point Defiance Park near the rhododendron garden. And he said that he was a jogger at, you know, jogged at Point Defiance regularly. And, you know, if he saw the guy again, I think he said something about, no, I, you know, I'll, I'll get the license plate or something like that. Th- think about this for a second. He called this tip in in May. Jennifer wasn't killed until August. Let's take a minute to unpack what Lindsay just said. Washburn called about Michelle's murder, not Jennifer's. So if you're tracking, Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick didn't put Washburn's surname down as a potential suspect DNA profile related to Michelle's case, but for Jennifer's. This jogger, Robert Washburn, called in a tip in May, three months before Jennifer's murder. It was odd for sure, but again... There just wasn't anything out of the ordinary going on in the jogger's criminal history that raised red flags. And he really didn't stand out at all. He had very minimal criminal history. He had, um, like, two misdemeanor arrests in King County for, I think, trespassing and vehicle prowling or something the year before the murders. So, you know, based on the criminal history, of course, you know, I had been trained, and through my own investigative experience, I had seen guys that commit horrendous, you know, sexually motivated crimes like this. They usually have, you know, a documented past of committing similar crimes. Right. They the ramping up theory. Yeah. Like. So I was. That's what I was. That was what I was looking for. I was mm-hmm. looking for guys that had, you know, they were either registered sex offenders or they had been convicted or arrested for sex offenses that, you know, had some sort of predatory, whether it was a stranger or, you know, something that was unique. And I didn't see that in this guy at all. Even so, the jogger's name was added to the list of persons of interest who would be asked for a voluntary DNA sample. Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick would also provide surnames that came up in her genetic genealogy research related to Michelle's case, and Lindsay cross-referenced those names in her database, but nothing came of it. It would take around nine months to collect the DNA samples, which Lindsay would then painstakingly package up and send the samples to the lab with her fingers crossed. It's not a fast process, uh, but they were all, first 100 were eliminated. So then um, I didn't have any money left to send any, anything to a private lab, so I had to start sending the samples to the state lab for testing. But as you well know, the State Patrol Crime Lab is 
way backed so up backed with their up. regular cases. Right. This is a 31-year-old cold case at this point. Not exactly a high priority. So it was basically like, you know, we'll get to it when we get to it. Or the next group of samples, I had sent 20 out, and that's the max that they wanted at a time was 20 samples. Mm-hmm. And so I waited, I don't know, maybe five, six months, something like that. Um, and then got a report back saying they're all eliminated from both cases. I had another another batch that went out, same thing, you know, waited several months. They all got eliminated. And finally, I was down to the last 18 samples uh, left. And by that point, I, you know, looking over the list of names, I wasn't excited about anybody on the list. Everybody that I was excited about had already been eliminated. Who could blame Lindsay? After 21 years on the force, maybe it was time to do something different. Lindsay will say that detective work is in her DNA, but trying to crack these cold cases really had begun to take an emotional toll. You know, that's why I'd been in homicide for 10 years, and I had been on call for 14 years. And when you're on call, when you're up on rotation, that means you get called out in the middle of the night, on your weekend, whenever, shooting, stabbing, homicide, stranger rape, officer-involved shooting, you know, whatever it is. And you could be out for eight hours, you could be out for three days. And that gets old. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Especially when you have your own, you you still have your own cases to work. And um, so I was just, I was tired. Making the decision to leave her cold case work was one of the toughest calls she's ever made. And she couldn't help but feel she was abandoning Jennifer's mom, Patty. One of the hardest parts about leaving was telling Jennifer's mom. Oh, I can't even. What did you do? How did you do it? Um, She was so great. I mean, she was just so supportive. Um, Mm -hmm. But it was hard. And my last day at the department, I remember I turned in all my stuff, and it was super emotional. I mean, it was just like, am I making the right decision? I'm getting emotional right now watching you because (laughs) it's almost like a mother-daughter relationship at this point because you're around the same age as her daughter. Yeah. And— She's like an adoptive mom at this point to me. Yeah. But, um, so it was really hard. Um, and I remember, like, I mean, I, you know, have to turn in my my gun, my car, all my stuff. And, I did, you know, my sergeant drove me home. And I remember, um, like, just making it, like, he just got out of the house, shut the door, and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, and I just, you know, just kind of lost it. Yeah. And I remember I went over to my mom's house, and I, like— I couldn't even really talk. I mean, I was just a mess. And um, and and I remember telling her, like, my biggest regret is not solving, you know, the Bastion of Welch cases. And I just feel like I let the families down. I'm sure it's no surprise to anyone that one of the last tasks that Lindsay completed before she hung up her hat was to send out the final batch of 18 DNA samples to the crime lab that had been collected from all those men. And yet, how fickle is fate? When after working the cases for years, and just a few weeks after Lindsay retired, when out of the blue she receives the are-you-sitting-down call that she'll never forget— I answered my phone, and he said, are you sitting down? And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's never a good way to start a conversation. Yes, I'm sitting down. And he goes, there's a match on Jennifer Bastian. And so, I mean, at that point, it was just sort of like a whirlwind. You know, first I'm like, how can there be a match already? Like, that doesn't even make sense. And then I'm like, oh, wait, 
there was that batch of 18 samples still at the crime lab. And and the ones that you were like, I don't even think any of these people, you yeah. could have just been like, you know what, I'm out of here. Uh-huh. He was in the last batch of 18, and, and um, I said, well, who is it? You know, what's the name? <laughs> and he said, Robert Washburn, and I was like, oh, my gosh. I mean, the reality is, is that Lindsay's chair in the cold case unit was still warm when her replacement sat down. He was going through some correspondence when he sliced open an envelope and read the report from the crime lab with the news that Lindsay had waited years for. And as the former cold case detective of one, she was the only one who had institutional knowledge of the case. Even if they hadn't needed her, can you even imagine the army they would have needed to hold her back from resolving this case for the Bastion family? On May 8, 2018, roughly 32 years since Robert Washburn, a.k.a. the Jogger, had called in that tip regarding the Michelle Welch investigation. His DNA matched the sample collected from Jennifer Bastian's swimming suit. And the question on everybody's mind was where the hell was Robert Washburn? Is he still alive? Did he move? I mean, he gave a voluntary DNA sample to the FBI in somewhere in Illinois. And we didn't know where he was. And so, you know, the first order of business was like, somebody needs to get eyes on this guy because what did he do after he gave his DNA sample? Apparently, he was still living in the same apartment where detectives had collected his voluntary DNA sample over a year earlier. Washburn had been the full-time caregiver for his adult daughter, who was nonverbal and severely disabled. On May 9th, five Tacoma detectives flew out to Illinois, and they arrested Washburn. Lindsay opted to stay behind because she wanted to be the one to tell Patty, Jennifer's mom, at long last, that man who had brutalized and murdered her daughter was behind bars. Just knocked on her door, seven in the morning, you know, woke her up. And, you know, I had planned to say something that made some sense or, you know, like, yeah, I mean, we barely got in inside the house, and um, and I just I told her, you know, we got him, and you know, and then you know she she was kind of just standing there, and she kind of faltered a little bit, and then we just hugged, and after so many years of hunting him down, of course, Lindsay was anxious to grill Washburn to get the truth of what happened to Jennifer and why. Well, that's the thing when you think about it. I mean, this is a guy who calls in a tip, puts himself in the case you know, basically inserts himself into the investigation. And he does it three months before he actually commits the murder. I mean, what kind of forethought and planning is that? Um, So I don't know if he got excited by Michelle's case. I mean, based on what he did to Jennifer, I think there's probably a pretty good chance that he certainly followed um, Michelle's case and probably was excited by it. And then did he, you know, think, well... That would be a good idea, or maybe the park is a good idea to go, you know, find a victim. I don't know. I mean, he never talked, so we don't really know what his... I mean, believe me, you know, we really had hoped to sit down and have a conversation with him. I was so curious, so I asked Lindsay why she thought Washburn gave up his DNA voluntarily when the FBI came knocking at his door. I mean, obviously, he knew full well he was the killer. Lindsay says since he never talked, we'll never know for sure. But she believes that Washburn gave up his DNA because he was betting that law enforcement would compare his sample to the suspect's sample in Michelle's case, not Jennifer's. And there's something sort of ominous that we haven't talked about yet. 
which is the fact that there were several men who actually refused to give a voluntary sample. At the time, they just didn't have the manpower to put detectives on them to collect a surreptitious sample. Which begs the question, if Washburn hadn't voluntarily given his sample but had refused, would they have ever gone back to get a surreptitious sample? Lindsay says it's a coin toss. Because we had so many people that refused, like I said, we probably had a dozen or so that refused. Would we have circled back to him eventually? Probably. But you you never know. You never know. Robert Washburn would ultimately end up pleading guilty. He was sentenced to 26 and a half years. The Bastion family was was satisfied with that result, and they preferred the guilty plea as opposed to trial, of course. Like, who wants to sit through that? You know, somebody like him, you know, he did have family, and so do you want your family to hear the gory details of what you did and and hear what a monster you are? Because mm-hmm. that would happen if it went to trial. It's no surprise that at Washburn's sentencing— He couldn't bring himself to look at Jennifer's family as they gave their victim impact speeches. The next to address the court will be Jenny's mother, Patty Bastian. For us, normalcy disappeared on August 4th, the day you decided Washburn would be a good day to savagely murder our 13-year-old girl. Thanks to the court here today, justice for Jenny will be done. And what about justice for Michelle? I mean, can you imagine the complicated series of emotions that her family had to work through? On the one hand, I'm sure they were overjoyed for Jennifer's family to have some justice after so many years for Jennifer. But what about their girl, Michelle? Incredibly, they wouldn't have to wait long. A couple months after getting a DNA hit on Robert Washburn, the DNA sample that had been collected in Michelle Welch's case finally revealed a suspect. So if you'll recall, Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick's genetic genealogy work netted the Washburn surname. But none of the surnames worked out for Michelle's case. They would come to find out that there were some non-paternal issues that complicated that search. But Lindsay, always with her ear to the ground, had heard about a genetic genealogist, Dr. Barbara Ray Venter, And if you're a true crime fan, that name will probably sound familiar to you because of her work on helping to identify the Golden State Killer. But back in 2017, before the Golden State Killer was identified, Lindsay had heard about her groundbreaking work. And a couple of years before she retired, Lindsay had the foresight to reach out. So I'm gonna nutshell a complicated chain of events. But basically, in 2018, the DNA of Michelle's killer was uploaded into GEDmatch. So GEDmatch is a genetic genealogy database that the public can use to upload their DNA data into. GEDmatch has also become a tool for genetic genealogists to use to find familial connections to match an unknown profile to a family member within GEDmatch. After a connection is made, a family tree is built And then genetic genealogists utilize social media accounts and death and birth records to get closer to the identity of the killer. Barbara eventually did identify two brothers that were, she believed were the likely, one of the two brothers were likely the suspects. And then Parabon also uh, did genealogy work on the case as well. And they all came up with the same two brothers. So detectives got eyes on the brothers, 
and surreptitiously collected a sample from Gary Hartman. Hartman was a married father of two. He was employed as a nurse at Western State Psychiatric Hospital. He had no criminal history. Once the DNA was confirmed, Hartman was arrested for Michelle's murder. Hartman pleaded guilty a couple of months ago at a bench trial. Lindsay was there to support Michelle's family. She says that Michelle's mother's words were really tough to hear. For over 35 years, I have wept in lonely silence. She was a beautiful, precious child who loved life. As were Michelle's sisters. As a nine-year-old girl, think that someone in this world sexually assaulted and killed my sister. And then to grow up with that thought in the back of my mind all the time has had a very heavy impact on my life. But Lindsay says she was glad to see the case through and that finally justice would prevail. And it was just so heartbreaking to hear her mom and her sisters get up there and talk about, you know, just how how it affected them. And then Hartman was in the courtroom and he was bawling, like sobbing. I've never seen anything like it. I've been to, I don't even know how many sentencings I've been to. It was like, I'm sorry. And it's, I'm so sorry. I'm- God knows I'm so sorry. And that doesn't help. I'm just sorry. You are guilty of one of the most malignant and depraved crimes it's ever been this court's obligation to address. Of course, there will never be closure for the families or the community. But Lindsay believes there is a sense of relief that comes with knowing that the men responsible for these crimes are no longer living amongst us. Yeah, I mean, I think the two cases were kind of a a dark cloud over Tacoma. You know, there was, like I said earlier, it was sort of like urban legend and just one of those stains on Tacoma. And so I think the solving of the two cases really was, I mean, I hate to say it was, you know, it aided in healing, but, you know, I think it did give the residents of of Tacoma and surrounding um, areas some sense of resolution. I mean, I hate the word closure, so I'll never say that, but just like a sense of resolution, like, okay, this guy isn't wandering around. I mean, I know I had people that reached out to me on Facebook and, you know, people haven't talked to in decades that that I knew from as a kid that reached out and were like, hey, um, you know, I'm just so happy to hear that, you know, these cases are finally solved. Like, it had such a huge impact on me as a kid. And this is why my parents never let me ride my bike. And, you know, this is why we had to use the buddy system. And, you know, it's like, yeah. I mean, it, it affected so many people. It was, you know, it had a ripple effect. But Lindsay's work with Patty, Jennifer's mom, wasn't over. The dynamic duo worked together to compel state lawmakers to pass the Jennifer and Michelle's bill. Their goal was to expand DNA collection from convicted sex offenders and ensuring that their profiles get uploaded into the National Registry. The Jennifer and Michelle bill was signed into law in 2019. Having as many tools to help keep children safe in the name of Michelle and Jennifer is a fitting tribute. I mean, if you read any of the studies, like the Washington State study, the child abduction murder study, which, you know, only evaluated cases that were solved, you know, those offenders, most of the time, they said the reason they chose the victim that they chose was pure opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was the wrong place, wrong time for the victim. And I I believe that's what happened in this situation as well.
The Murder Chronicles is a cavalry audio production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Josh Windish edited and mixed this episode. Music by Soundstripe. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.